You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Second Timothy chapter two. I appreciate uh, Andrew Hughes filling in for me last week. I had the opportunity to get away from my family. I uh, got a little bit of tan. Probably gained about five or eight pounds, which means it was a great vacation. Uh, just had a really good time with my family and, and being able to unplug for a while. So I appreciate him doing that. He broke my microphone. I'm going to tell you that now. He broke my microphone. He didn't really. It just quit working. So I've got a new mic this morning. So it may sound a little different. I know it sounds a little different to me. But uh, we're, we're working on that. But uh, appreciate our AV folks who are working on the video, audio, and all the stuff that goes on every week. And also, let me say thank you to all those who are tuning in online. We've got people from all over the place that are tuning in. And I want you to know that I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that you're tuning in with us. We are here to serve you, even though we are maybe separated by miles and maybe even country borders. Uh, I'm here to serve you in any way that I can. And we invite you to, to reach out to us via email. Uh, through our social media pages. However, we can serve you. Please let us let us know how we can do that, and, and we will do our very best to do that even from a distance. One of the things I think you've probably picked up on is a concern that Paul has uh, for Timothy and for this church in Ephesus. And strangely enough, it's the same concern that I have today for our country and for the churches that are dotted all across this state and all across our country. There are over 4,000 Southern Baptist churches. And for those of you who are watching online and for those of you who may be new here today, we are a Southern Baptist church by denomination. But we are a church that stands upon God's Word. We are a church that stands upon the Gospel. Uh, and and we, we identify as people of the Word and uh, people of the Gospel and the Great Commission work that we've been given. But all across the state, all across the country, one of my biggest concerns and what I see happening is that the Church of Jesus Christ, the churches that may have stood upon the gospel, stood upon the authority of God's Word, are being undermined from the inside out. And what I mean by that is culture is beginning to influence people and churches and leaders and pastors and what they're sharing and what they're not willing to share. So, so one of my greatest concerns moving forward, not only as a church but as a country, as, as, a, as a church universal, is, is that we are constantly on the lookout for folks who want to depart from the sound words of the gospel and the sound words of, of God's Word given to us in these 66 books. You see, it's not just a, a threat from the outside, but it's when that outside becomes part of the inside and begins to undermine the church itself and what it teaches. All for the hope or for the cause of reaching more people, which I find amazingly ironic in that we would be willing to undermine the very message that people need to hear to reach those people. You see, that's insanity. And that's what's happening all around us. I think that Paul was concerned about the church at Ephesus and Timothy, its pastor, because through these two letters, and we're going to see it again today, that, that Paul names individuals. He calls them out. He says, these people have departed from the faith. They've walked away. People that were once followers of Jesus, ones who were at least showing the, the indication that they believed in Jesus and believed in the gospel, have, have now completely walked away. They have apostatized, 
And I believe that Paul's words to Timothy, especially in this second letter, because this second letter is Paul's final words. Not just to Timothy, not just the church at Ephesus, but Paul's final words. You see, Paul is in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, his imprisonment at this point is much different than his previous imprisonment in Rome. His previous imprisonment in Rome was almost like a, a house a prison or a house jail. He was confined to a home. He had a, a soldier, a prison guard that was assigned to him 24-7. People could come and go. He could, he could have people over. He could send letters out. He could continue to do ministry under house arrest. But we know that at some point, Paul was released. But we know that he was arrested again, and, and more than likely what happened was that Nero was blaming Christians, and particularly Paul, for the fire that broke out in Rome and, and destroyed 10 of the provinces within that city. And though historians tell us that it may have been Nero that said it himself, but nonetheless, he blamed Christianity and blamed Paul for it. So Paul now is in a completely di different set of circumstances. He is in a, in a prison that was pretty well known. As a matter of fact, historians tell us that when you got near this particular prison, you could smell it before you saw it. It's basically a cave underground. And the pictures that we see, and you can go visit this prison today, the one that they believe that Paul was in. And what you'll find is, is that there's a hole in the ceiling of this carved out rock hewn cave. And it's in that hole where they lowered Paul down into the hole. And it's through that hole that they would lower what food they would give him. And he's down in this pitch black dark hole that is wet and damp. And Paul is having to use the bathroom there in that prison, in that hole that he's in. And historians and people who wrote about it and, and experienced it said that it was one of the worst places in Rome. That's where Paul is. And, and Paul knows that he's going to be put to death. He, he already knows that. I mean, he's escaped death several times, but there's something about his writing in this letter that says to me that, that Paul understood clearly that he had come to the end of the road. So Paul is going to say to Timothy the last words that Paul is going to get to say to his church, to his son in the faith. So it's very important that, that we understand that. And it's very important that, that Timothy gets the weight of what's going on because I believe that Paul is concerned that this church at Ephesus is going to get undermined from the inside out, that the gospel is going to be eroded, that the authority of, of God's word is going to be set aside through false teaching and people who had crept into the church. I was doing some statistical work. I, I'm really always, I'm kind of interested in what the new census data is telling us about our city. I'm always trying to, to make sure I understand who is in Lumberton. Who are the people we're trying to reach? What are they like? What is their age? What is their family situation? What is their economic situation? Because what that does is it helps me to understand that, that when we're reaching people and sharing the gospel, how to do that more effectively. So I was looking at some, some interesting data, and I, what I found out is that here in Lumberton, the median age uh, within our city, basically you could say 20-minute drive from this church. The median age is 35. So we have a large, large representation of millennials. Of course, millennials are folks who were born between uh, 1984 and 2002. Maybe, that, maybe that's the, the, the generation you represent. And, and among that generation, we have the largest group of people who are completely disconnected from the church that we've ever had. As a matter of fact, the millennials and the next generation that is coming up behind them, Generation Z, 
are, are the most lost groups of people that we have ever seen demographically, ever, especially in the Bible Belt, where we live. So I, I saw another set of demographics that, that really brings this into focus. And in that poll, it said that only 16% of millennials, those born between 84 and 2002, believe that they will go to heaven as a result of the faith that they placed in Jesus. Now, now get that number. Only 16% of the largest group of people in society right now have, have, a, have, the, have the confidence to say that I've put my faith in Jesus and that I know when I die, I'm going to go be with him. Only 16%. Folks, that means that 85% of that generation knows nothing of the gospel, knows nothing of Jesus, knows nothing of life hereafter, knows nothing of what has changed your life as a Christ follower. But here is the most interesting statistic that I saw. That among those millennials, not only are the vast majority of them not following Jesus, but the reality is, is that they don't care. They're apathetic. The, the report that I read said that 43% of millennials say they either don't know or don't care or don't believe that God even exists. Folks, that percentage is unprecedented in history past in any generation. What, what, that, what that tells us is, is that of those Gen Xers, my generation, that were raising the millennials, we didn't do a very good job of passing off our faith to them. And not only that, they are actually saying that we don't know or we don't care. So here's the reality. We, we, can have, we can have the greatest speaker. We can have the greatest band. We can have the greatest ministries on this campus. We can have some of the greatest events to come onto this campus to hear about Jesus. But the reality is the majority of our population right here in the city of Lumberton, they will say to you, I really don't care what's going on at your church. I know that's hard to hear. That's the reality. But this next, next set of statistics blow my mind. Of that same group of people, the millennials, they are far more likely than any other generation before them to put their trust in horoscopes, palm reading, tarot cards, karma, which is a, a Buddhist idea that if you live a good life now, later on you'll be rewarded when you get reincarnated and you'll have a better life then. So here's the reality. Although they will say we don't know that God exists or we don't care, the reality is, is what the Bible teaches is still true, that there is a God-shaped hole in their heart and they're trying to fill it with everything in the world. But the truth. So now more than ever, the church of Jesus Christ must absolutely be focused on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's Word, what we would say is orthodox Christianity. It is at this point in time that Satan will absolutely try his best to undermine the very message that our community needs to hear. And I believe that was Paul's concern as he's writing these final words to Timothy. So as we realize that large segments of our population have turned against or turned away from God, what should be our response? How do we deal with that? What should we be doing? Well, this is what Paul says to Timothy. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you then, my child. Now notice that statement, you then. He, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that if, if Paul could have went to Ephesus and met with Timothy and gave Timothy these words personally, 
I think this is what it would have looked like. Paul, at this point in his, in his message to Timothy, if he could have been there, would have, would have grabbed Timothy by, by his cloak. And he would have pulled Timothy in really close, and he would have looked Timothy directly in the eye. My, my dad would do this when I was a teenager. When I was acting stupid and saying stupid things and doing stupid things, and my dad knew he needed to get my attention, he would reach out with that, with that uh, calloused hand that he's got, and he would grab me by the shirt, and he would pull me in close, and he would look me dead in the eye to make sure that I understood. And made sure that I understood by saying, yes, sir. I think at this moment, if Paul could have been there, he would have pulled Timothy in, he would have looked him eye to eye, and he would have said to Timothy, now remember, all of these people that I've mentioned to you, names such as Hermogenes, Phagalus, which is in the previous chapter. Look, matter of fact, look back at chapter 1, verse 15. He says, for you are aware of all who are in Asia turned away from me. Isn't that amazing? Paul, the apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the best preachers to ever walk the face of the earth other than Jesus, planting churches, proclaiming the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, and there are people who heard him teach, but yet turned away from him. There were, there were people inside Paul's inner circle, people that Paul considered friends who were no longer walking with him. He names them. He says, Fugalus, Homogenes. If you go back into the previous letter, he mentions Hymenius, Alexander. Later in the next chapter, he's going to mention another guy by the name of Philetus. Here's what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy, you recognize that there have been friends, close friends of mine, who are no longer walking with me. So now he gets in Timothy's face through this letter, and he pulls Timothy in close, and he says, you then, my child. He says, you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Do you think of grace this way? I think for most, most of us as Christ followers, we think of grace in, in context of, of when we got saved. That moment that we put our faith in Jesus, we recognize that it was by God's grace that we were able to not only hear the gospel but respond to it. That, that God was the one who came looking for us. And that the fact that God came pursuing us was an act of His grace, His unmerited favor, that, that we deserve nothing from God. All we deserve from God was eternal judgment. We were born into sin, and then we chose to sin, every single one of us. Every human being in this room and across this planet was born under the curse. And we didn't deserve anything from God, but yet God in His grace pursued us. He came looking for us, and He extended love to us. And he called us to his side. So most of the time when we think about grace, we think about it within the context of salvation. But that's not what Paul's saying to Timothy. No, Timothy's saying, or Paul's saying, Timothy, there is strength found in grace. Not just grace for salvation, but for grace to live out what Christ has called us to. You see, grace is not just something relegated to your salvation. No, grace is what empowers us and strengthens us to continue the work that God's called us to do. Get this, God has called us to take a message of good news to a world that doesn't want to hear it. And, and in not wanting to hear it, they may actually get angry. They may actually get violent. As a matter of fact, our brothers and sisters all over the world, maybe in countries that are watching this morning, they are living in situations where if they talk about Jesus in the public square, they can be arrested, beaten, and even put to death. So the message that we've been called to proclaim is not always welcomed in the public square. So how are we going to do it? Paul says we're going to be strengthened by the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean that we find strength in grace? Well, let me give you an analogy. Let's imagine that, that you have a wealthy father, and this, this father has tremendous resources, tremendous wealth, tremendous power. And he's got a son, and that son is going to be sent into a foreign country to set up a business deal. Now, going into this foreign country could be dangerous. There are people who know that this son represents a lot of wealth. He could be kidnapped. He could be, he could be uh, beaten. He could be held for extortion. So it's, it's a dangerous situation. But the father is going to send the son, and he says to the son, now listen, I love you. I support you. I've got your back. And all of the resources that I have are yours. So whatever you need to accomplish the mission that I've given you, you have it. So son, you go in my power. You go and represent me. You go in my strength and you go in my resources. And that son, he straightens his back. And he gets on that plane and he goes into a dangerous situation knowing that it could go bad. But he goes into that situation knowing that he has the power and the influence and the wealth of his father that is in his corner. And no matter what happens, his dad is going to look out for him. You hear what I'm saying here? That favor that the, God, that the father has for the son is the same favor that God has for you as one of his followers. Not just the favor that saved you, but the favor that keeps you and the favor that empowers you. And it's that grace, that unmerited favor, which you did not deserve, that the resources of the creator of this universe are at your disposal to complete the mission that God has given you to do. Listen to me. You do not, you do not need to worry about having enough resources to, to accomplish and participate in the great commission work that God has given us. You have all the resources you need in the creator of this universe. How much more do you need? God says, you're my son or you're my daughter. And I send you in my power through my grace. And you go in my strength. And you do what I've called you to do because you go not in a strength that is yours, but a strength that is mine for the promises that I've made you. You see, that's, that's a game changer. I don't, I don't have to grab onto something else. I've got all that I need. And Timothy needed to hear that. Timothy needed to hear that in the grace of God, there is strength that is available to you to face whatever you've got to face tomorrow, whether it be a bad diagnosis, whether it be marital problems, whether it be a boss problem, whether it be children problems, whether it be whatever, you're going to need some strength tomorrow. And guess where that strength comes for every Christ follower? To an unending well of power, wealth, beauty, and love in your Creator. You've got all you need. How, how could Paul go all over Asia Minor claim the gospel, be beaten half to death many times. How is it that he got out of bed the next morning? The strength that grace provides. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Timothy, there's some things, other things you need to know. Not only do you need to be operating in the grace, the strength that grace provides, but you need to be reaching people and multiplying disciples. Look what he says here, verse 2. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, so here's what Paul says, and this, this is very important that, that Paul in his last words to Timothy would highlight this. So, so what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, remember the great commission work that you've been given to do. What is that great commission work? Well, Timothy, you take what I have taught you. And remember, Timothy spent time with Paul all through Asia Minor on those missionary journeys. You take what I've taught you, and then you teach others. 
with the understanding that the others that you teach is then going to teach others. So let's put it in a different context. How did the gospel make it to Lumberton? How did it get here? How were you able to hear about the good news of Jesus? How is it that churches got established in Lumberton? I don't know the history of how it got here, but I know this for certain. Paul didn't come here and preach. Timothy didn't come here and preach. John didn't. None, none of the first-generation leaders came to Lumberton. How did it get here? It was dependent upon one person telling another person who told another person who told another person. And some way, somehow, through the providence of God, the gospel came to this little community named Lumberton. And churches began to get established. And disciples began to make disciples who made disciples. That is the methodology of God's Great Commission work. That one individual who's been changed by the good news goes and tells another person who then has their life changed and is then equipped and taught and trained who then begins to tell another person. Isn't it interesting that Paul would tell Timothy in these last words, Paul, uh, Timothy, remember your Great Commission work? Your Great Commission work is to make disciples. Your Great Commission work is to multiply your, your Great Commission work is to be about the kingdom work, which is people hearing and responding to the gospel. It's not about having a building. It's, it's not about having a bunch of programs. It's, it's not about all of these other things. It's about the Great Commission work, which is the gospel being shared and proclaimed, people being drawn by the Holy Spirit to the gospel, having their lives changed, and then being equipped and baptized and sent forth to do exactly the same thing. Four generations of discipleship. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, those faithful men to others. Four. I went to a conference one time at Southeastern Seminaries back before COVID-19 and all this stuff started. And uh, there was a guy there who had wrote some books on discipleship that I really enjoyed reading. And he was doing a really small gathering. It wasn't like this huge 5,000 people conference. It was only a few hundred people. And I wanted to go because I wanted to talk to this guy because God had used him overseas. He was a missionary and, and had multiplied uh, disciples all over a particular area. And it was incredible what God did through the span. So I went to go to this, this meeting, and we were sitting around talking, and I'll never forget what he said. I'll never forget how he framed this. He said, you know, churches are, are, are striving to become disciple-making churches. Just like what Paul described here, disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And he said a lot of them have it in their mission statement. A lot of them are saying it and saying all the words. But he said we really need to assess whether that's actually happening. So it's a really easy thing to do, to find out if a church is actually living up to what Paul's talking about here. He said I would go to that church if I was invited there to, to assess. He said what I would do is I would go to that church, and the first thing I would do is I would invite the pastors. I would invite the elders or the deacons or the leadership structure. I would invite them to come, and I would provide dinner. And here's what I would do. I would ask for each of those leaders in the church to bring with them the person that they are discipling, and the person that they are discipling brings the person that they are discipling, and the person that they are discipling brings the other person. So we're talking about exactly what Paul is talking about here. We're talking about one person leading another person who leads another person who leads another person. And he said, if I come to your church and I ask your leaders to do that and they can't do that, if they can't bring at least two others with them that they've discipled, that these people now are also discipling, he said, then you have not reached the place of what Paul was exhorting Timothy to do, and that is to pour into other people who pour into other people. The reality is, 
is the reason we only have 16% of millennials who care anything about the gospel or anything about whether God exists is for this exact reason, that for years the church has been focused on other things other than Great Commission prayer. Paul goes on to say to Timothy with three very rich imagery images here, he's going to give three metaphors. He's told Timothy, he says, now look, receive the strength through grace. He's saying, reach people, multiply disciples, who then multiply disciples. That's how the gospel makes it from Jerusalem to Lumberton. And then third, he's going to say, let me tell you about a metaphor. Let me give you a picture here. And notice what he does here. He says in verse uh, 3, he says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who, who enlisted him. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, um, let me give you a, a word picture here. Let me give you a metaphor. Timothy, look around. You see the Roman soldiers. Timothy, notice how they're focused. Notice how those Roman soldiers, when they have a mission to accomplish, that nothing, nothing gets in their way. Notice how those soldiers are willing to suffer and to stand at their post to go into battle, to, to go days without food or water, to stand on guard in a particular area for maybe 12, 14, 20 hours a day. Timothy, notice their dedication. Notice their endurance. And notice how that nothing gets them off of their task. And Timothy, you take that imagery and you do the same. I am so thankful and grateful for those of you here who served in the military. And, and I'm sure you've got tons of stories. I, I didn't serve, but my dad did. And, and I've heard him tell me stories of where he would get assigned to, to a guard post somewhere. And they would put him there, and they said, you stand guard right here. And then they would leave him. And it would be hours. And he didn't know when his relief was coming. And he would have to stand there. And it didn't matter if he needed to use the bathroom. It didn't matter. His job was to stand guard at that post. Many of you who've gone overseas and served in, in battles, when you're sent out on a, on a tour, when you're sent out on a battle, you're not thinking about food. You're not thinking about shelter. You're not thinking about anything except accomplishing the mission. Thank God for you. But you were willing to share in the suffering. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, it could be that you've heard somewhere along the line that if you just put your faith in Jesus, then life is easy. You'll have enough money. You'll have a good job. You'll have the perfect spouse, perfect kids. Uh, you'll have all that you need. I'm sorry that you heard a false gospel because it's false. In no way, shape, or form by putting your faith in Jesus does all of a sudden your bank account get filled with money. We've got families right here that are faithful followers of Jesus that are concerned today about how they're going to pay the bills tomorrow. We've got people right here in this church who've been following Jesus for years who just got a cancer diagnosis and are facing all kinds of treatments. We've got families in this church right here that have lost loved ones to COVID-19. And they are, they are faithful Jesus followers. And maybe you as a lost person, you've looked at their lives and you go, wait a minute, I was told that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay. But yet I see this person up here with a cancer diagnosis and I know they love Jesus. So, so if that's your faith, if that's what it is, if Jesus just abandons you at the moment you need him most, then I want nothing to do with it. And maybe that's the barrier that's keeping you from following Jesus. Well, I'm sorry you, you were told misinformation, but, but, but hear me clearly. 
The greatest life a person can live in this life is taking up a cross and following Jesus. There is no greater life. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, there's things I can't participate in anymore. It won't because it'll, it'll bring dishonor to my king. But the fact of the matter is there's more joy and more peace and more comfort and more love and more acceptance than I've ever found anywhere else than at the feet of Jesus. You're looking for this out in the world and you're not finding it. You're looking in the world for, for somebody to accept you and, and, to, and to, to uphold you and to give you value and peace. And you're looking for it and you're looking for it and it's always a dead end. Let me tell you something. Should you try, shouldn't you try Jesus? We just sung about it a little while ago. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, like a good soldier, keep your endurance, keep your focus. Don't get entangled with lesser things. You know, soldiers don't get entangled in the local affairs of whatever's going on. They've got a mission to accomplish. What's got you distracted? I, I think a lot of Christian folks are just distracted. Man, we've got a lot to choose from now, entertainment-wise, job-wise, life. We, we got all kinds of things that, that, that can become incredible distractions. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be distracted. Stay focused. Notice what he says next. And also with that soldier, why, why does the soldier do what he does? To please the one who enlisted him. Why do we do what we do? Why do we, why do we face the suffering? Why do we go through it? Why do we keep bringing Jesus up to people who don't want to hear about it? Because that is what our king has asked us to do. That's our mission. And out of our love for him, and so that, Hebrew, he, so that he receives glory and honor, we do what we've been called to do. Notice in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 5, he goes to another metaphor. He says, an athlete, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Huh. According to the rules. What is Paul talking about? Paul, again, Paul's got Timothy pulled in close in this letter. Look at him eyeball to eyeball. And he says, Timothy, endure like a soldier. Sharing the suffering. But then he switches. He says, you, you remember those, those athletes that compete in those Olympic games, right? Timothy, you remember that imagery. And, and you remember that. And, and Timothy would have known this. Paul would have known this. The, the hearers of this letter understood this in that culture. That if you were an athlete and you wanted to participate in the Olympic games that Rome had put together, that you had to stand before Caesar. These athletes had to stand before Caesar and swear upon Zeus, their false god, that they had been training for at least 10 months before those games would begin. So in other words, they had to swear that they had put in the work, the 10 months of training, before they would be allowed to participate in those games. Paul knew that. Timothy knew that. So in this imagery that Paul is giving Timothy, the first thing that's going to come into the mind of Timothy is the absolute hard work, and, and the training that was involved in these athletes. So, so Timothy, as an athlete, an athlete is not going to be crowned unless he plays by the rules. So Timothy would have thought about this and go, hmm, I remember what you said in that previous letter, Paul. In that previous letter in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, I need you to go into the gymnasium, and I need you to train in godliness. And he said there in that same chapter, he says, now, working out the body, it has some benefits. But what I really need you to do, Timothy, is I need you to train yourself in godliness. What does he mean? He means that in following Jesus and being part of the church, the very word church means ecclesia. It's a Greek word that means called out from. That being part of the body of Christ means we've been called out of the world and therefore we live differently. 
So Timothy, make sure you're living a life that you're training yourself in godliness to live out what it means to follow Jesus, to not turn to the left or to the right. That an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What are the rules? So if, you've, uh, if you run marathons or you run uh, long distance, I know any of the large marathons that we have, like the Boston Marathon, there, there are people that have the, the job to make sure that all of those runners stay on the course. Because I don't know if you know this or not, there's been documented cases where runners would slip off into an alley and get in a car, and their buddy would take them on further down on the course somewhere and drop them off in another alley, and they would come back out onto the race course and cut three or four miles and increase their time tremendously. Yeah, people will cheat. They will cut corners. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, do not cut corners. Do not sidestep your life and how you live your life. Do not acquiesce to the culture. Do not become like the culture. Do not let your flesh take over your life to where you're living ungodly. You live out what Christ has called you to live out, and you train yourself to do that consistently. Because the last thing we want to do as followers of Jesus is give lost people another reason not to follow Jesus. The last thing we want to do is live out our lives in such a way where on Sunday Christ matters, but no other time of the week does he matter. No, in no way ever do we want to live out a life of hypocrisy. So we have to train ourselves in godliness. We have to be hard at work at making sure we're living out what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I know these false teachers are creeping in. I know they're arguing about words. They're quarreling about everything. But you, Timothy, you make sure you keep your eyes on Jesus and you follow him. Play by the rules, Timothy. Timothy, don't, don't add to the gospel. Don't take anything away from the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not need me to add anything to it. The gospel itself, God's word, is powerful enough to change a person from the inside out. I don't have to use gimmicks. I don't have to manipulate you. I don't have to, to force you to start crying or to feel bad. All I have to do is proclaim the truth, and the Holy Spirit takes care of the work in your heart. The gospel doesn't need me to add to it. The gospel doesn't need me to take any thing from it. What the gospel needs is somebody to proclaim it in all of its truth and all of its beauty without gimmicks, without leverage or manipulation. That Jesus Christ dying on a cross, resurrected from the grave publicly, ascending back to the Father publicly, if that's not enough to change a life, then there's nothing left for us. Paul said it this way. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then we are all hopeless. We don't have to add anything to it. What we need to do is live out what we believe. Finally, Paul says there's another analogy here. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. Now, we've got three different analogies, three different metaphors here. We have a soldier, endure, keep your focus on your mission. We have an athlete who trains hard and plays by the rules. Now we have a farmer, and all he says about the farmer is the farmer is hardworking, and the farmer should have an opportunity to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Well, now we know all through the New Testament, both in Paul's writings, the Gospels, Jesus' parables, that agriculture was a big, big deal. 
And that Jesus would often use that to teach great truths. So, so built into this one statement is a whole bunch of agricultural culture within Timothy's day. So what we have here is a picture of someone who works hard. They get up early in the morning before the sun ever comes up, and they're already out in the fields or out on the farm with the animals working. And long after everyone else has went home and kicked their feet up, they're still out there working. They got their hands dirty. They're out there maybe all by themselves, working hard, all because they know they want to reap a harvest. Now, I grew up on a farm, and I watched my dad leave early in the morning and come back late at night. I know many of you farm, and you work hard. And you don't work hard because you want somebody to come out there and pat you on the back and tell you how great you are, because that doesn't happen, does it? Farmers, how many times have you been out there on that tractor? out in the middle of a 600-acre field, and somebody comes walking across that field, stops, she climbs up on that tractor, reaches out their hand and says, I want to thank you for producing this corn that is going to be turned into cereal or something for me to eat and for my family to be able to have some corn at the grocery store. How often does that happen? That's a big fat zero, isn't it? Most people don't even know that that corn came from you. They have no idea where it came from. It comes from the grocery store. Now, there are farmers out there working their fingers to the bone. They're hardworking. Paul says to Timothy, the work of the gospel is hard work. It's hard work. But not only that, we work because we know there's going to be a harvest. We work because we know that we get to participate in something beautiful and grand. Now, Timothy understood the harvest to mean a couple of things. One, when Timothy crossed from this life into the next, when he died, and Jesus welcomed him home. No doubt Jesus looked at Timothy and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Come in to the joys that await you. You were faithful over a few things, and now I'm going to make you faithful over many. I'm going to give you a lot of responsibility because you were faithful over a few things there in Ephesus. That is the beauty of the harvest. Getting to go into that kingdom with Jesus and be with him forevermore and to be there and see other people there that we may have had an impact on, that we may have had an opportunity to lead to Christ, that to participate in that harvest, that future harvest, where we get to be in the kingdom and we see people from all over the world and we join together and we worship Christ, never to be separated from him again and never to be under a curse again. Timothy certainly understood the blessings of the harvest to be that, but there's more. We get to participate in the blessing of the harvest today. There is nothing I enjoy more than sitting across the table at a McDonald's or a coffee shop to talk with someone who is far, far from Jesus. I, honestly, the only thing I enjoy more than that is getting to teach God's Word because that's my, that's, my, that's my calling, that's my passion. But it also includes teaching someone sitting across the table with me who may be atheist, Buddhist, whatever, or they may be Baptist and lost. They may, be back, they may have their name on a church of a, of a Methodist role, and they're lost as they can be. And to sit there and have a good conversation about what the Bible actually says about the gospel and how it changed my life. I'd rather do that than, honestly, than eat fried chicken. And yes, I'm a Baptist pastor. I love me some fried chicken. Timothy, you get to share in the harvest. So what got Paul up every day? Well, when Paul would get beat half to death, as we saw when we walked through the book of Acts, what was it that got Paul out of bed the next day? Well, it wasn't Advil and Tylenol. It was, it was the passion that Paul had to participate in planting and sowing and, and plowing the hard work of plowing the soul in Ephesus, the hard work of plowing the soul in Corinth, the hard work of plowing the soul in Athens. What was it? This is hard, hard work. What was it that got Paul up every day? What's going to get Timothy up the next day? 
What's going to get him out of bed? Well, the idea that we get to participate in a great harvest. And then finally, notice what Paul says to Timothy. And this, this, this phrase, this phrase just, just got my attention. And it's simple. Verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Do you find that odd? I did. Now, Timothy has spent a lot of time with Paul. All over his missionary journeys. He spent a lot of time. And what has he heard Paul do? He's heard Paul proclaim Jesus over and over and over again. The conversations that Paul and Timothy would have off to the side was, you know, let me tell you about when I met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Yeah, Paul, I want to hear about that again. And in conversations as they're traveling, centered on the teachings of Jesus, how the Old Testament fulfilled that. No doubt as Timothy and Paul are, are doing life together, Paul is pouring that into him. So if, if anybody has been faithful to Jesus, I can probably say that Timothy has because he's had a good man train him. So do you find it shocking that through all of that experience and through all of that time, that in these last words, Paul looks at Timothy and he says simply to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ as if Timothy would forget. And yes, here's the crazy thing. You can forget. Maybe you've forgotten. Could it be that the only time you thought about Jesus all week was when you got up this morning to come here or to tune in online? And could it be that you won't think about Jesus again after you walk out of here, that he never comes up in your house? Well, when, you're, when your kids are facing some difficult situation where they, they don't know how to navigate, is Jesus part of that conversation? Or is Jesus just what happens at 301 North Roberts Avenue or at www.hydepark.church.com or .church? Is that the only engagement with Jesus we've got? Is it possible that God's people would forget Jesus Christ? And the, the answer to that is yes. If, if Paul is saying to his son in the faith, son in the faith, remember Jesus, then don't make any mistake about it. You too can forget Jesus in your day-to-day -day walk. And folks, that ought to put a, that ought to make the hair stand up on the back of our neck. The very thing that changed your life we can forget. Listen to what he says. He says, remember Jesus Christ. And he qualifies it. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul says, Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember that Jesus came and he lived among us. Remember that Jesus came and he, and he worked miracles and, and he taught people and he cried and he healed and he loved. He was a real person. He had flesh. He had body. He, he, he walked among the disciples and I got to see him on the Damascus Road. Timothy remembered that he died. And, and included in that death is a person who was a human being. But he wasn't just a human being, Timothy. Remember that he resurrected from the dead, which means, yes, he died, but he also resurrected, which means he was both man and he was God at the same time. Timothy, do not forget that. And not only, not only did he rise from the dead, but he ascended back to the Father. He sits with power and authority. You see, tomorrow, you, you're, you're going to run into some problems tomorrow you don't even know about yet. Your doctor's going to call you with some bad news tomorrow. Your, your marriage is going to hit a wall tomorrow. Your kid's going to come home from school tore up about something. You're going you're to find out something about your grandkids that's going to break your heart. You're, you're going to hear something in the news that's going to weigh on your shoulders. And I'm going to tell you something. In those moments, 
the only thing you might be able to cling to in that moment is that there is a tomb in Jerusalem that was inhabited by a man who died on a cross but resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. That might be the only thing that anchors you from being just drifting off into a broken world. That might be the only thing that holds your feet steady is that Jesus has resurrected. Every day is Easter. Every day. I find hope and I find peace in the fact that, that Jesus didn't succumb to death. He beat it. He, he made death his servant. He brought death to its knees. And not only that, he says here that David, he's the offspring of David. All through the Old Testament, Jesus is presented as Messiah predicted and, and talked about by the Old Testament prophets saying, this is the king who will come. This is how you'll recognize him. And not only that, they say there in those Old Testament prophets, it says there that, that Jesus will reign on David's throne forever. So when he says there that, that Jesus is the offspring of David, he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, remember that Jesus died Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended. He is the Messiah, and he will reign with power and authority. All kings, all kingdoms will be brought to their knees because this son of David will reign with all power and all authority. I would imagine that Timothy needed to know that in Ephesus, that there is a king, and he's in control, not Nero, not, not, not Homogenes who's, who's crept into the congregation with, with trying to divide it. Folks, the reality is, is that our world has changed drastically. And my concern is, is that the focus, that the target is going to be the church to undermine it, to undermine its message. And what should our response be? Strength that flows from grace. Endurance like a soldier focused on our mission. Training like an athlete would in God in us, to live out what Christ has called us to live out. Playing by the rules, which means we're not cutting corners and we're not watering down the gospel. And to work hard as farmers, knowing that we get to participate in a great harvest. And by all means, remembering Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And uh, Father, during this moment, during this time of worship, Father, may your power rest on this place and on those places all over the globe where people are watching. There are commitments that need to be made this morning. There are things that need to be let go of. There are distractions that need to be put aside. There are things in our home that need to be well, put aside. There are some who need to put faith in Jesus. No more excuses. No more, no more putting it aside and waiting for another day. But today is the day of salvation. For others, Father, that are following you, they need endurance. They need strength that flows from, flows from your grace. They need renewal. Give it to them by your grace, by your power for those who are seeking it. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.